Hi, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Catchings of the History Voyager. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. I'm here with Laura Jadid, who was an Afghan or an Afghan uh, veteran of the Afghan War. That's what you were. Ba ba ba. And also uh, a journalist now. And uh, I thought we'd just have a conversation. So how do you want to kick it off? Uh, well, it's great. It's great to be here. And um, yeah, it's certainly uh, a time for reminiscing about Afghanistan, I guess. It's just awful uh, how it ended. And, and I also think inevitable. So, Yeah, I do too. Um, I distinctly remember years ago when it started, I distinctly remember thinking, oh yeah, we're not going to, this is how it ended the other day. It was pretty well how it was going to end because we're not in the business of colonization as such anymore or at all. Whatever. Well, we're certainly not very good at it. Well, right. But we do seem to try, <laughs> just not very successfully. Do you th- okay, let me ask. Uh, do you think that was on the table at any point, the colonization of Afghanistan? Oh, do you mean like making it into a, a, a client state of some, or I guess a, like a territory or? Well, like, I guess, you know, if you want to go full Victorian, where, you know, <laughs> the young plucky doctor can take his young wife and his young child. <laughs> to cobble you know what i'm saying like yeah no i I don't think that was ever i don't think anyone ever wanted to to do that but i i do think that going to a a foreign country and imposing your own form of government and essentially creating a a client state uh to me that would qualify as as uh, colonization but whatever you want to call it, it it didn't work out and i don't think it was advisable in the first place yeah i mean right um so the way I should, I suppose I should tell my audience the way I found you was I was just trolling. I was trolling. I was trolling through <laughs> Twitter one, one afternoon and I saw this fascinating Twitter thread and I was like, Oh, I need this person on my podcast. This is interesting. So essentially you ran through this memory of what it was like for you over there about, you know, yeah, um, it's. I really didn't expect it to take off the way it did, and I do think it's important to, to mention. I mean, this is hopefully obvious to everyone that I am like one person who saw one thing, and a, a lot of veterans saw different things, uh, and will have different opinions. But yeah, I I just remember at the time thinking that this wasn't this was all all futile. I, I remember this wasn't something I, I put in my thread, but I was uh, I was lucky enough to do support for MARSOC, the Marine Special Forces. And we stayed pretty late one night trying to figure out, um, I do, I did signals intelligence and we were trying to figure out how to get maximum intelligence gathering coverage. And we'd figured something out. It had been a good day. Like we'd really, we had a real solid plan and we finished and we looked at each other and he goes, it's really too bad. All of this is going to fall apart the minute we leave. And I'm like, yep. And there was this moment of silence and he's like, well, time for bed. And that was, you know, but that to me was like, everyone knew, everyone saw the writing on the wall. And I mean, I mean, your Twitter thread went into some fascinating down in the dirt, like down in the nitty gritty 
kind of like you couldn't okay what was the thing about the batteries for example there was a thing oh, yeah. about that to this day and i know it's awful i'm trying to get better about it i know you're supposed to recycle batteries and i'm trying but like the animal joy of being able to throw a battery in a trash can is something all these years later it's been 10 years and i still every time i throw a battery in the trash can i smile a little bit because uh, you weren't allowed to uh because the the local nationals, as we call them, you know, the Afghan people who worked on base, some of them would go through the trash and they would pull out all of the dead batteries and they would wire hundreds of batteries together to get one tiny charge that was enough to detonate an IED. And I mean, that's the kind of, how do you fight something like that? That's the kind of tenacity that America just does not have. That's, you got to admire it. I certainly did. Well, it's, it's okay. I talk to folks all over the, all over the planet these days and what i've the mantra that i've developed is what problem are you solving right for anything you're solving a problem all right so when when you go to afghanistan to fight them what problem are you solving right yeah is it a problem in afghanistan or or did it maybe and this is what i came to see it as are you really solving a problem in your own country Right. Is it a domestic problem you're solving that you have these people that you feel like they just need a war to go to? Yeah, no, it's you know, honestly. No, it, it I mean, it certainly as the years dragged on became more and more apparent that there was. Yeah, we weren't we were solving the problem of our wounded pride. And, and to be honest, from the beginning, I think it was that I. I mean, I'm you, I'm sure, remember September 11th and just the fever that gripped America. I mean, me too. I was I was very young. I believe I was 13 years old when that happened. And, you know, like a lot yeah. of people, I was I was very much swept up in it. I it was this this fever. And I do think people who were yeah. born after September 11th or who don't remember it, like it's very hard to explain the kind of like weird rage trauma that just gripped everybody. Yeah, I mean... I have a 9-11 memory that I've already shared with people, um, which I'm sure there's folks out there that this is the only episode they're going to hear. So why don't, do you want to go first and tell me your 9-11 memory? Or <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, tell it or what? No, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, I uh, went to school. I went to middle school and my first class was Mr. Stebbins's uh, English class. And we were reading Oliver mm-hmm. Twist. But in the morning, we would always just put on the news, which, you know, just to see what was going on. And, you know, I walked into class and this plane had hit one of the towers in New York. That was weird. We figured it was a Cessna. And then the second plane hit. And my teacher turned off the the TV, and I'm sure he remembers this too. And he said, class, I know it's very exciting, but nothing is more important today than Oliver Twist. And that was not true. Um, as it turned out, it was, it was a little more important than Oliver Twist. And we turned the TV back on just in time to see the second tower come down. And of course, that was the last piece of learning that happened for us that day. Well, I remember um, I was making... Uh documentaries then um in college and i remember i'd started the soundtrack of this thing i was doing was giving me a fit like was okay let me be more specific slash pc i was having a serious problem with the soundtrack of the thing i was making right Mm -hmm. and i had to so i had to come in early to to do the soundtrack right make sure it was 
could be fit for civilian ears, as I used to say, like fit for general consumption, basically. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, so I, I came in and walked in the door and I thought, let me go get a Coke because surely I'm going to need lots of caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. He's that kind of day. Yeah, surely. So I did. And I saw all these people huddled around the TV and they, I was like, what happened? And they were like a plane, uh, slammed it, fell or crashed into the world trade center. And then, Oh, okay. So I thought of it like you, I thought it was a Cessna. And I think we need to say that. I think everybody thought it was a Cessna. Okay. Yeah, and inconceivable at the time that it could be anything else. Like we didn't have that in our collective memory yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I I'll never forget this. I walked over to the Coke machine, put in one it was 75 cents for a Coke, for a 20 ounce Coke. So I put in one quarter, two quarters, and then the second plane hit. Oh wow. Okay. And I saw the second plane hit live on television. And then the next thing I'll never forget was I was looking at this dude who I remember his name, um, Chris Foster. I was looking at Chris Foster in the fit and his face was the, this picture of, of twisted contorted terror that I've mm-hmm. never forgotten. Right. And if he's a podcast listener, cause we know each other a little bit, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to shout you out like that, but I'm, I'll never forget your face. But <laughs> I remember that. And then I remember looking at images, like looking at images I've never forgotten that I've never actually seen since then, you know, like I've never seen that bit of tape since then. Yeah. Like people falling out, people jumping out of the tower, people, it was stuff. It's a nightmare. Exactly. And at some point, I never left that room for hours. At some point in that time, it, it hit like, oh, I never did put in the other quarter. <laughs> now, now, the thing I should probably tell you is that that machine got a lot of Got a lot of business. Uh-huh. Like 20, oh, sure. 23 hours a day, that machine got a whole lot of business. But nobody yeah. had bothered to use it in, in, you know, two hours or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I put in yeah. the other quarter and got out the Coke and just sat there and, and watched. And I think my bag was still in that room two days later. Like, mm-hmm. it was still... Now everything was just on hold. Like every, all the things that you would expect to happen just didn't. I I just remember. Yeah. Go ahead. I just remember the, the next day I I ran into this elderly professor who said, we're going to go to war. Aren't we? Oh yeah. And he said like, yeah, we're going to go to war. Like, like just like that. And we did. (laughs) Yeah, we sure did. No, I, I, um, 
I remember there were two things I remember about later that day. And then the next one was that I was in a, you know, cause we went to all of our, our classes. It was very strange. I mean, every classroom had a, you know, they dragged the ancient TV in there so that we could keep watching, but we went to from class to class. And in one of the later classes, somebody said something about how, you know, these goddamn Arabs like this, that's the problem. And um, I was yeah. like, Hey, excuse me. Um, I'm a second generation Syrian. I mean, on my father's side, my mother is, is quite white, but um that's not true. No. Like we're not all like that. And then the second thing I remember was like walking to class the next day and thinking the same thing that your, your professor said, like we are going to go to war. And I thought, am I, would I sign up for it? And I thought, no, I'm, I'm too scared. I don't think I could do it, but it stuck in my head for yeah. years, you know, as things unfolded and I was a big supporter of it at the time. It just seemed like we had to fight back against, you know, the, the feeling of powerlessness was unbearable. And I'm not saying that yeah. as something that's good. I'm just saying it as something that, that was. It was. It, no, that's, and I'm not saying it was good or bad. It's just a, it's a thing that if you weren't alive, then you don't remember. Yeah. But the thing that I'll never forget is, so I'm older than you. Mm -hmm. I'm basically we would not have gone to high school together. Like I've talked mm -hmm. to people that we would have ended up in high school together, but you probably, well, you actually, you've been to school in my County. You would have been in middle school or something. So you would have been that cohort later, that later cohort. But, yeah. um, so I went back to college. Um, and, uh, it's like, I would meet people and I had buddies that went to war and, and over the time, like, you would hear these stories that were just crazy. I mean, just like, is this what we're doing? Like, really? Yeah. You know, like, so, but, so, okay, so you got to, when did you go to Iraq? I mean, Afghanistan, first of all. Um, I went to Afghanistan in, uh, the first time in 2008. I was on the tail end of the deployment. Uh, if anyone from that unit is listening, they're tearing their hair out that I get to talk about it because that was a hellish 15-month deployment for the rest of the 4th Brigade of the 82nd Airborne. And I finished up with Arabic language school and then, you know, training airborne school just in time to get on the last plane over to like hang out for three months and come home and get my combat patch. And oh boy, was there some hard feelings and I am sorry. Uh, but that was, you know, it was quite a bit later. I graduated from high school in 2005, joined immediately, but then that training took about two and a half years. So. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, what was it like in Afghanistan? Pretty much. Um, so my, I, and again, like I have a very narrow window. I remember what I saw and nothing else. I did not see combat. I was lucky enough not to, um, as a, signals intelligence collector and analyst my first tour was stuck in something called a skiff which is a um it's a secure facility where you you know analyze intelligence and send the reports out it's kind of connected to kind of mission control so like i didn't see combat what i did see was all of the decisions that people made that led to the kind of combat we had and um my first yeah. deployment was to the east. I was at Fab Salerno in Coast Province, right next to Pakistan. And after about a week, it became apparent to me that the, the key to this area to understanding the intelligence that we were receiving was the tribal structure, especially in the east. There's like a really strong tribal structure. And some people get offended by that term. I don't mean it as a pejorative. I mean, this is literally like recite your lineage back 10 generations tribalism. And 
so I requested like a, some kind of rundown of the tribes in the area so I could understand what I was getting. And there wasn't one handy. Eventually, like two weeks later, I managed to find one. And it was like 12 pages of we're not really sure. And this again, this was, you know, seven years into the war. And like that, I think, was the first moment my faith was shaken because I joined out of an excess of patriotism. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, no, oh, no, we don't we don't know what we're doing. Like, yeah. yeah. And we don't care. Like, how could you be in a nation and pretend to help people and not even care how they live or what they think, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. Can you drill down on that a little bit? Like, we don't care. Yeah. Well, that's the, yeah. The, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go Um, ahead. We, um, I mean, I feel like one of the, the big problems was that we, I mean, I, I said this um, last night on, on an appearance that like we wanted the Afghans to have any government they wanted as long as it was the, was, was the government we wanted. Like we just came in and decided what was best for Afghanistan. We decided that freedom and democracy was the answer. Democracies don't declare war, we said, having just declared a war. And we just forced it on these people without looking at what Afghanistan is. And what Afghanistan is, is this pretty loose connect collection of like urban areas and then tribes in the east and then you know people and very much in the iranian sphere in the west and it's not really a nation state like we understand it and the people there don't necessarily want to live the lives of americans like some of them do i'm sure it's not a monolith but you know we just assumed that of course they were yearning to be free i mean who isn't right we just we just assumed that and so we forced this model on them without ever asking ourselves what they wanted. And it worked about as well as you'd expect. Not it's, well. It's funny, it's funny to, 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 um, to click, to, to use a terrible analogy, to double click on some of these words here. Um, like freedom, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, I talk to folks all over the planet and the word freedom means vastly different things to vastly different pe- to different people. Like, you know, like my notion of Afghan history is that it was kind of one of those places that was made a country by colonial powers that left. Yeah. Or may or maybe it was a I don't is that right or is there you know, more to it than that? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I, I would imagine. I I don't know how the borders of Afghanistan were were drawn exactly. Uh, I wish I did. I I do think that whatever it is, it's it's a collection of people who want to be left the hell alone and have honestly done a tremendous job of making sure that happens. You know, I mean, not since Alexander the Great has anyone really conquered Afghanistan. They just stay a while and then leave in disgrace every time. You got to respect that. Yeah, and maybe that's why the the Taliban, et cetera, set up there because mm-hmm. it's kind of like the Wild West in a way. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Certainly the Wild East. I mean, again, there's there's urban areas that are different. I didn't really see those. But yeah, I mean, my God, in the East, like the border is, a, you know, the border with Pakistan. I mean, this is something I definitely know. That's porous. That's people in the area don't recognize that. There are tribes that have, you know, presences on both sides. They'll cross over just, you know, without really even thinking about it. It's just their idea, uh, the idea of a country is almost just wrong over there. It's, that's not, I don't think that's how they see it, as far as I can tell. Well, I mean, that's, you know, um, when you live in a border region at all, you know, the 
it's wrong to think that you're all one thing or all the other. I mean, sure. you know, I, I remember I had a professor that she lived in an area that was, she grew up in an area that was three countries in the same village. Oh gosh. Wow. Where was that? That's dang. There's, there's an area of Europe huh. where there's like, there's a village. It's like these three borders come together. Oh my gosh. Like you have like the nominal courthouse or the nominal this or the nominal that, right? Sure. But it's all basically the same village because the village is older. See, that's the thing about Europe. The village there is older than the countries that it's in. Right. So the, the people just, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, what? I think people forget like nation states are pretty modern. Like we didn't yeah. always have countries like yeah. we think of. It's, it's, it's a pretty modern invention. But, you know, um, I think we've talked for 20 minutes. I don't think we, I mean, okay. So Afghanistan is like, let's see, you have Iran in the east, right? The west, yeah. Iran in the west, Pakistan in the east. Um, A bunch of stands to the south and north. I'm a little, because I was staged, I was both times, I was right like near the Iranian border the second time near Pakistan the first. I'm not as familiar with that. Afghanistan actually has a tiny little border with China, believe it or not, which is yeah. still crazy to me. I don't know. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a relatively spread out place. Oh, yeah. That bears a striking resemblance, at least physically, to West Virginia. <laughs> I, I, and you know, it's, it's funny. I described in my post Afghanistan as a dusty beige nightmare. And I stand by that where I was, that was certainly true. And I got a lot of people, you know, putting in like Afghanistan beautiful into Google and then pasting what they found and were like, you're misrepresenting the country. You were never there. Like, okay. It's a big place, just like America, you know, if, imagine characterizing America like West Virginia, that would be a very well, strange I, thing to do, you know, like, I don't it's, mean- I don't mean that it was physically like West Virginia. I mean the, oh, border, I the see. borders. The border it looked on the mm-hmm. borders a little bit like West Virginia. Interesting. Um, at least it did to me. Like West Virginia that had been put through Photoshop. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Take a picture of West Virginia and like a map of West Virginia and you put it on through Photoshop and stretch it. <laughs> Interesting. I haven't um, I haven't a lot of experience with West Virginia. I gotta say I uh I might pass yeah. on that uh Again, I'm not trying to tell anyone how to feel and I am not trying to like denigrate the place. It's just that to me, it was a very scrubby place with a lot of sand and like one plant just clinging to life. Just, just not a hospitable area. And I mean, again, like I have so much respect for the people who live there and are like, this is my home and fuck you. Am I allowed to curse? Oh, I'm ready to not say for work. Sure. Okay. Sorry. I really should have asked that at the beginning. Apple Apple would rather you not uh, sell drugs on my podcast, but ah, um, darn it, that's the whole reason I came on. Ah, oh, fine. <laughs> yeah. Apple would rather you not sell drugs, but beyond that, or you know, beyond that. But um, so let me ask. Um, okay, so the batteries with the you're throwing out the batteries um, on the base. Uh, you talked about there was a kid named Cowboy. Yeah. Uh, that had been nicknamed Cowboy. Yeah. Um, and he worked there. He worked on the base. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, a lot of local nationals worked on the base. Uh, we, you mm-hmm. know, the the soldiers didn't do the 
you know, that I'm going to call it like the dirty work. I, I don't mean that again. Lunch I don't mean line. that pejorative. Yeah, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. they, we had cafeteria workers. We had people who do our laundry. I actually had every single one of my uh, pairs of underwear stolen when I put it through the, the laundry. There weren't a lot of girls on base and there, there aren't a lot of women that, that people encounter in Afghanistan in, in the culture. And they, uh, yeah, they stole every single one of my uh, <laughs> pairs of underwear, but that's not, that's not what you were asking about. It's just a funny story. Well, um, right. And it's also kind of strange to think they're so starved for anything about a woman that they'd steal yeah. women's underwear. But Right. And I assure you, these were not sexy panties. These were like the, the yeah. grossest granny panties you can imagine. Like this was, I was yeah. astonished. <laughs> God bless, I guess. But um, but yeah, so there were a lot of local nationals who worked on the base and at the DFAC, this was one of the people and his whole family worked on base doing various things. As far as I can tell, his brother ran a small shop where you could just buy kind of trinkets and necessities. I don't remember what the rest of them did, but, but cowboy, he stood out because someone from a previous deployment had given him a cowboy hat and also an I'm with stupid t-shirt that he really liked, which is ironic because, uh, you know, there he was working with us. And I think that t-shirt was, was accurate in, in some ways, but, um, yeah, he was, he was really great. Everyone loved him. He, you know, big smile, just yeah. a, just a sweetheart, you know, great guy. Yeah. And somebody had tried to, uh, let me think. Somebody had tried to set him up in school and they couldn't do that. Like, Yeah, well, that was he wanted very badly. His family also. I mean, he was a, apparently a very good student and his family had this idea that, you know, that that meant maybe he could have an opportunity in America. He could go there and study and, you know, get ahead. The whole family was very ambitious. I very I mean, I really again, I really respect it. And I mean, he asked everyone to, to try to help him do that. And I, I did go we had some computers on base. Again, I can't emphasize that they're, I am what they call a fobbit. I did not go out and see combat. I had a, a base with computers on it, but I, I, you know, a, I looked. What's a fobbit? What's a fobbit? Um, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a disparaging nickname. Um, the, the places, they're, they're called forward operating bases or fobs, um, small oh. bases surrounded with, you know, concertina wire and people who don't leave it are fobbits, like hobbits. You know, we live in our little hole and that was okay. me. <laughs> okay, you were a fobbit. Right. Yes, I was. Um, I went out to the wire a couple times, but not enough to not be a fobbit. Um, and so, you know, I looked in, in their in their computer lab and I found nothing. Like I just found that all of the programs for, you know, foreign students or, you know, people who'd been educated outside the U.S., like excluded Afghanistan specifically because the education system is trash. And again, can't emphasize this enough. This was, you know, eight years, nine years after we started this war. And that was something that we didn't do. You know, that's something we could have done. And that could have actually helped people. I, I know we established schools for girls. I know we established some schools, but we didn't establish the kind of learning institutions that could allow people to, to gain what I'm going to call modernity if they wanted it, education. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that was by design or do you think that was just uh, a, a mis... What do you call that? Like a... Misallocation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it was malicious. I like to think it wasn't. I just think that our priorities were all wrong. We just... I mean, America has this idea that we can just go in and smash stuff and then the people will rise up and thank us and then they'll make freedom, you know? And it's like... The emphasis is, is more on the smashing and the like, you know, making sure that the evil terrorists don't take the freedom away. It's not, I don't think America tends to think very hard about what makes a country stable and prosperous. 
other than just freedom as a generic concept. Well, you know, I mean, if you want to get politically theoretical about it, um, there's probably a lot of Americans that have never really experienced. Okay. I talked to a woman who grew up in the Eastern Bloc. Mm-hmm. And her memories of her childhood are astonishing. Like, they would astonish the average American. The mm-hmm. average American would have no concept of, like, oh, my kid has an earache. Oh, Jesus, I have to go. I've heard, you know, her dad, who was, you know, well-placed in the Soviet system, had to go to different places like different satellite countries to find earache medicine for god's sake jeez yeah no it's a different different way most americans don't have that reference yeah you know i i right it's the idea of the kind of life that that other people lead. And I think especially because the people who tend to get into power are people who were born wealthy and you know, have, have never understood what it's like even to be poor in America, never mind what it's like to be poor in a country like Afghanistan. There's there's a lack of imagination and, and a lack of desire to learn, I think. I think that's the hallmark of the American. It took me having a podcast. Okay, I'll say that. It took me having a podcast and talking to people all over the planet to understand that so many people all over the world look at what's happening in America today. And they're like, well, of course that was going to happen because America is this country that if it's not happening right in front of you, you don't see it. You literally don't see it. And you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know it's so easy to just never meet anyone outside of your bubble. So I do this podcast about COVID on this Mm -hmm. channel. And what a lot of people don't know is that COVID has actually Okay, so there's a family of diseases we call the Cove family of diseases. They've been killing people for 20-something years, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, That graph has done a dramatic rise in the last two years. Very dramatic rise in the last two years. The 19 variant is, is pretty serious. Well, as an example, SARS killed about just a little bit under 81,000 people all over the world, right? And so COVID-19 has killed in the millions, and what's that, 20 years later? Um, You know, just saying. But you're a journalist, so you're a journalist now, right? Um, yes, um, I, I have, uh, I'm at the very beginnings of a career. I've, uh, I've published for uh, Truthout Salon, um, some local oh. papers in Portland when I lived there, but um, cool. working on it, I'm about to actually embark on journalism grad school out here in New York. So I'm very excited about that. Okay. Wh- you went to, you used to live in Portland. Yes, I did. 10 years. Okay. What's, what was Portland like? Portland's a very interesting place. That's a that's a conversation for a whole other podcast, I think. Um, it's a, a city that has this reputation as being very left wing. What, what it really is is liberal, which is not the same thing. Uh, it it likes to 
it likes to have the patina of being patina. I don't know. This is the problem with reading. Um, it has a patina of, of progressivism, but in, in fact, it's not as progressive as it likes to think. We have a huge police brutality problem. Um, I covered the, uh, the George Floyd protests all last summer and in, into the fall. And yeah. uh, of course, the far right problems there are pretty extreme. You know, Portland is a dark blue city, but it's surrounded by dark red um, rural areas. Uh, there's a tremendous history of uh, the KKK, Aryan nations, um, Christian dominionism, a lot of other like really, really gross far right uh, ideals out there. Uh, sorry, now you've got me ranting on my favorite subject. This is what I usually talk about. But this um, is what no, I, the, one of the reason I want to talk to you is because. You kind of hit both of the wheelhouses I like to talk about. I like to oh, talk nice. to veterans, and I like to talk about um, kind of inequality and also what's, you know, the far right and also, you know, maybe even the far left. If I can find somebody to talk about the far left, which we really don't have in this country. <laughs> yeah, no, we not, do not have a functional left in this country. Uh, it's very unfortunate. I am. I consider myself a leftist, and um, yeah, yeah, one I mean, despairs sometimes. Well, the problem is, I think. So okay, why don't you talk about your, um, what you talk, what you wrote about as far as you got your, uh, your basic. Uh, let's see, Proud Boys. Uh, Oh yeah, the you got the Proud Boys. You got the Patriot Pura folks. Um, yeah, I mostly concentrate on what what uh, a lot of people, including myself, like to call the alt light. It's like the alt right without all the calories um, or the ideological consistency. Um, it's mm. people who call themselves civic nationalists instead of ethno nationalists. You know, they they're not racist. You see, they just believe in uh, you know that the West is the best and America is superior and. Yeah, there's a lot of dog whistles. And, uh, you know, it was a really understudied um, group of people for, I think, a long time, uh, not so much anymore. But when I started in 2017, it was it was pretty, um, it was not on a lot of people's radar. And it was certainly uh, a thing in Portland. And I, I became really interested in it. And I actually ended up doing my uh, political science thesis on that uh, while I was out studying. So, Yeah, I mean... I'm kind of like you. I was a little bit, you know, further back in time than you, but I'm kind of like you. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was out here in, in Atlanta and I was mm-hmm. writing about this, uh, uh, difference in the split. It was like, I saw a split in the dominant political in the dominant white political culture. Mm. I saw like a, a real split between like, you could have, these parents that were Republican, like they were very Republican, Mm -hmm. but their kids were not their kids Mm -hmm. were. uh, And it was because of the war. It was because of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. their kids were very today. You'd call them liberal and it would be different from leftists, but you, they were liberal. They, they were, they were very liberal, but what was fascinating was they were looking at the same problem they were looking at the same situation and they were coming to vastly different conclusions mm-hmm. and so that's another reason i wanted to talk about with you is because i feel like we were two different you know we both sort of chronicled splits interesting yeah, yeah it's certainly been an era of change hasn't it uh the 
the political landscape really, really shifting in the past uh, while. It has. And, you know, you say you, you studied political science. So when I yeah. studied it, um, I learned that most people have their political leanings um, defined by the time they're 28. Mm-hmm. Unless something happens. The next sentence always was, unless something happens. Yeah. And for me, that something was the, the crap, you know, the, you know, the, the economic downturn after nine mm. eleven. Yeah. But for these people, I think it's going to be COVID and it's going to be the COVID yeah. recession and whatever mm-hmm. else. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I have some friends that are, are optimistic in the sense that we now, and again, this is from a leftist perspective, but we now know that, you know, stimulus checks are possible. Um, eviction moratoriums are possible. There's a vision of the possible. They told us for years that it couldn't be done and it was, you know, it would wreck America. And now I think we've seen that that's not the case. And in fact, it's, you know, people are still not doing well because of the situation, but it's materially improved things over where it would be otherwise. And, you know, I think there's some hope if the left can get its shit together that, you know, that could be a real watershed moment in the way that we imagine America and what it could be. But of course, there's also the the polarization and the fear and the, you know, weird antisocial lifestyle that we've all been forced to live for the last year and a half and foreseeable future with the Delta variant. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not a trained epidemiologist or anything like that. But what I am is somebody that can read studies. Mm -hmm. I can read the abstract of studies. And so what what happens when you read the abstract of these studies is what you see is, first of all, the COVID variants are becoming more lethal. And if you put them, if you situate them on a time on a graph over the past 20 whatever years you see that on a line number one number two the other thing is delta so do you have a vaccine yes okay was your vaccine moderna it was luckily it was moderna which i've heard is the best one well either moderna or pfizer um so here's the good news congratulations the the pandemic for you at least for your personal being is over okay so for you covid would be a cold or the flu Mm -hmm. something similar to that right right if you if you have unvaccinated folks in your life it would not be that for them it would be very very bad for them yeah so that's the thing i think we're gonna see is i think we're gonna see sort of a split in how covid is handled And I personally think whether we want to talk about it as nationalized healthcare or whatever, you're going to have to build more hospitals. We don't have, we're, we don't have enough hospitals because I don't think number one, I don't think COVID's going away. And number two, um, I, 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 if they haven't learned yet, they're not going to learn, you know, the anti-vax people. Yeah, conspiratorial thinking is a hell of a drug for sure. Um, Not one I'm trying to sell on your podcast, Apple, but it's uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
but yeah, no, it's, it's the closed loop thinking. This is something that, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of my research on the far right is involved. It's when you have a closed loop, you can't be persuaded by evidence. Any evidence you see is just further evidence of how deeply effective the conspiracy is. You know, they're, they're this conspiracy is so deep that they're pumping out these documents that really make it look like the vaccine is good instead of something that will make you like magnetic or something or whatever their current obsession is. And, um, was you can't. Five, it used to be five G. Have they moved off five G? You know, I'm not. I haven't heard a lot about five G lately. I feel like the vaccine is really the, the the next big thing right now. I, okay. I'm someone will link them, and then they'll they'll really have a, a good podcast. They'll really they'll really be raking in the dough. So, you know, I swear to God, I like. Here's something because I talk to people. I talk to podcasters who to talk about this stuff. I keep having this thought that if you went back to the forties, like the forties and fifties and whatever, and mm-hmm. you started talking to people there, farmers there about, Hey, there's a, there's a virus. You need a vaccine because they deal with animals, right? Mm-hmm. They would, Oh, sure. Let me have a vaccine. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. But you know, these days you, you're so you can, you can be removed from that, you know. Yes, that's true. Yeah, you don't really, we haven't, we don't have experiences of, of epidemics. We don't have that memory. No one alive has experienced anything like this. And uh, it's hard to comprehend, yeah. I think. Like humans are real good at like immediate danger. Like we all understand like someone with a gun, but it's harder to understand something abstract. And uh, it's a flaw. Yeah. You know what? What? Well, the you said we didn't experience an epidemic. Well, there was. Um, there was the AIDS epidemic, but that wasn't That's really. True. That was more. Um, so I I used to live in the city of Atlanta, and Atlanta has per capita had maybe still has I don't know per capita more gay people than anywhere in the country. Interesting. So like I I would have like a lot of gay friends just because they were my neighbors or -hmm. whatever. So like you would meet like somebody who their friends were dead or whatever. So, yeah. And when I went to school, even there was a man, I've talked about this on my podcast, even there was a man who was older than us, who experienced what has to be the AIDS epidemic, but in the late Mm seventies, right? When it was first. Yeah. It was so first that it wasn't even interpolated as anything. It was just like, mm-hmm. the people in my building are dying. Like, the people in my apartment building are dying. And so he got out. Like, he didn't Yeah. He didn't right. have to, you know, there wasn't anything, anything. There wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? but, I mean, you're so. right. And I do always forget about the, the AIDS epidemic when I compare it. I, I mean, I think that. There's a material difference in that the answer to the AIDS epidemic wasn't stay in your house and don't talk to anyone. The unfortunately, you know, the answer to the AIDS epidemic was, you know, protection or don't have sex. And while that's, I'm not trying to downplay the significance of that. It's huge, but it didn't disrupt life like COVID has disrupted life. It's just yeah. unbelievable. And what's fascinating is I've done a lot of oral history over the years. And what's really interesting is when you talk to people even like heterosexual people of a certain age, you know, the age when you had birth control, but you didn't have AIDS. Right. Right. Yeah. The glory days, surely. It's really interesting when they get to trust you, what they talk about 
and you think mm. you think to yourself that's not our world today like that's nowhere close nobody would do that now nobody's sane let me say that nobody's yeah. sane who wanted to live would do that now <laughs> right wow okay yeah. <laughs> you know like no uh, right. take me back to the 60s come on i'm waiting Actually, uh, as far as I can nail down, the the heyday might have been the early seventies. But mm, fair histor- enough. Historically, as far as I can nail down, the heyday, the actual heyday, might have been the early seventies. But I don't know. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, yeah. So, but no. Um, you also said you wrote about you write about equality, and I was or inequality, and I was mm-hmm. wondering, do you want to talk about that as well? Sure. Yeah, I mean, mostly what I've been focusing on recently is housing issues around the eviction moratorium and what the lifting of that would mean to people and what the um, what the landscape is. I actually just today um, there's an article in Truth Out that came out by me uh, about the impact of the eviction moratorium and lifting it on landlords and how um, you know because we've all been seeing these these sob stories in the paper about mom and pop landlords who can't continue on as they are because they're not getting the rent that they need. And in some ways, this is really misleading because there are whole loan programs for for small landlords. And on average, these people have a lot more net worth. I'm not talking about salary. I'm talking about resources to draw on than the tenants who would get evicted if we lifted this ban. However, and I'm sorry, now I'm again ranting about something that's interesting to me. uh, But the uh, the problem is that we have a roaring housing market. I mean, a really good one. That, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a you know a seller's market right now, and so a lot of these small landlords are selling their properties because it makes more sense than waiting for rent relief that just isn't coming fast enough. And waiting in the wings are the big Wall Street companies, the real estate investment trusts, private equity firms who are snapping this stuff up like candy. And those guys are the worst landlords. Like we don't have a ton of research on it because it's a pretty new phenomenon. But what we have indicates that they evict more often, they're more discriminatory, they saddle people with more late fees, they make maintenance a problem for the tenant, like they have to pay to repair appliances or even the sewer system. And they just, I mean, it's poison because they're doing it for the shareholders. And it funnels money out of the community and into the hands of the ultra wealthy in a way that could be really devastating. And we just... The fact that we aren't getting rent relief out fast enough, we have the money. We're just not distributing it. And it's going to, my God, is it going to cause problems for everybody? I mean, let me just, because I had a housing lawyer on my show. So mm. some of the problems that we're going to have are, you know, in, in order to get a job these days, you have to have an internet connection. Mm-hmm. Um, something else you have to have is a stable address. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else, you know. It's going to, you're going to have this knock on effect and that nobody, I don't think a lot of people are working on or thinking about this for real. Um, but it's just, I mean, the thought I keep, and also she brought up the, the fact that a lot of these landlords, maybe not the small ones, but the, you know, like the, the fiber ones, the the apartments Mm -hmm. that cost insane. Uh, they are taking advantage of a program through which it's like it's, it disincentivizes them. It ended up disincentivizing them renting to people. Like they don't have to peg. Yeah, they don't actually have to peg their apartment to the real actual law of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. So, Interesting. 
Yeah. Right. It's like you get paid out of more programs if your apartment is vacant. Then hmm. if a land, you get paid if you're a, if not, maybe not the small landlords. I don't know about that. Yeah. But like the 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 five over one uh, apartments that you see, mm-hmm. maybe not in New York, but like, you know, here or like, you know, wherever those get to take advantage of this program through which the government pays them because the owner says, now, bless my heart, I can't find anybody to rent to, mm-hmm. you know, so can you keep us afloat? And I wonder, honestly, like I look at my friends and I look at my, my, you know, my cousins and my friends and people I know, I wonder if what's going to end up happening is like you're saying, you have a, a hot housing market. And so people with a, with a stable job end up just getting a house or a condo or something. And you're going to run out of people to rent to. Well, I don't think that's, I don't think that's actually based on what I've read and I, I'm not trying to contradict anyone, but what I, what I've seen to see is, is actually a housing shortage. Um, right now we have a 6% vacancy rent rate, which is, I mean, that sounds like a lot, but you have to consider, you know, turnover at any given time. Part of that might be due to the program you're talking about. I got to look into that, but um, you have yeah. a very low vacancy rate, historically low, and we just aren't building a lot of housing. And the housing that we are building is luxury condos and single homes, not luxury mm-hmm. condos, luxury apartments, and uh, not a lot of low-income housing, which just it, it's it's driving up the cost of rent. It's making it difficult to find a place to rent. Uh, it's, I mean the real solution based on the people that I've interviewed uh, the academics and, and activists that I've interviewed is we just need to build more housing, especially section eight housing, low income housing. There just isn't enough of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I see that. I mean, I found out, so I had a lady on my podcast yesterday and she lives out in um, San Francisco mm-hmm. and I was amazed to find out that actually Atlanta has a similar renters market to San Francisco in terms of price. Really? Oh my god, that's I horrifying. was shocked. I was like, wow. <sighs> yeah. Jesus. I mean, and I think that's actually why when I look out my windows, I see a lot of people I I call it bunking up. Mm-hmm. You know, I see a lot of people living with people. Mm-hmm. I think that's why. I mean, I, I honestly and I'm not oh, yeah. throwing that under the bus, I, you know, whatever. People got to do what they got to do, but I'm just saying. And what I was talking about running out of rent, what I was talking about running out of renters was like, you're going to run out of these people that think I have a good job. Let me live in an apartment. Mm. You know, that's what I mean. I Hmm. think you're going to run out of that. I mean, that would honestly be a a pretty good problem to have. I mean, homeownership increases net worth. I, I just looked this up so it's on the tip of my tongue. The average net worth of somebody who lives in an apartment is, I believe, 6200 or something in mean, that ballpark, whereas the average net worth of someone with a house is 250000 or thereabouts. I mean, it's dramatic. That's it's, it's such a vast improvement for people if they can get their own property that I hope you're right. I hope more people will buy houses and be able to have better lives. Well, I think it's I think we're going to end up with both. I think you're going to end up with these people trapped in a renter's market, but you're also going to have these people that might've been fortunate enough to find somebody that they can, they could have saved that money up to get 
some to pay for somewhere. Mm-hmm. As long as yeah. they have a decent job, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's a mess either any way you slice it. It's a it's a real mess out there. Yeah, and all this is gonna. I mean, you're talking about the renters. Um, so they have they ended that yet, or have they extended it? It's a mess. The eviction moratorium is an absolute um, clusterfuck right now. It is. They ended yeah. it. And then a few days later, Biden reinstated it, but only for areas that have high rates of COVID, which is most areas. But a lot of judges are ignoring it. You know, Trump stacked the courts and it's really paying off for him now. And it's just it's it's massive confusion. I think no one really knows which way is up. And it's just really piecemeal. So the the long, you know, the short answer would be it's kind of there and it's, you know, I don't know how long it's going to hold. There's legal challenges. It's we are on the precipice of disaster, and I don't know how this ends. Well, I mean, I read somewhere in the paper recently, where my local paper, where one in five people in the city of Atlanta are um, have been evicted. God, that's um, terrifying. Yeah, it is. And chapter two of that, like, so the part that I know that lots of other people might not is it's even crazier than you think because you don't have any more, the low income housing that you have is not your stereotypical low income housing. So you have to have a pretty decent job to be able to afford it in the first place. Well, so, okay. You know, I mean, in New York, they have this thing called the working homeless where you mm-hmm. have nurses and stuff that are homeless. Yeah. So just saying. I mean, no, just, it's horrible. Throwing it out there. Yeah. No, we, we have this idea. And I think, actually, I listened to the podcast that you had recently with the, the woman who had experienced uh, houselessness. And mm-hmm. I think she made such a powerful point, which is like, we think people like deserved this. We think they're like, you know, they they don't they don't work they're lazy that's not it's not true like we we live in a we live in a society and in that society we don't have affordable housing for people we have a situation where you can work 40 50 60 hours a week and not be able to afford to live anywhere and that i mean i hope people will examine whether or not our system of of our economic system is really serving people when this is just a thing that happens it it doesn't I don't know. This doesn't really seem to be serving people and it might be time to look into other, other ways of doing things. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, chapter two is you have a lot of, you have a lot of college degrees out there that um, don't necessarily terminate into a job that you could even support yourself on. And yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily fault the, the student for signing up for that program because the student wasn't told the truth. They weren't actually told what was going on. Yeah. Right. I mean, how do you, how do you blame an 18 year old for making a bad decision when they don't, they only know what they've been told. It's really good point. You know, imagine being told since you could read CAT is cat that you need to run off to college and go major in French or whatever. Yeah. And then, okay, what Google translate does that? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I mean, right. 
And I do. I also think it's it's a real tragedy. And I say someone, you know, this is somebody who does have a social sciences degree and is about to go into journalism school. So, you know, I've, I'm living that impractical life. But I do think that um, this society really doesn't value things that we're, we're going to miss when they're gone. Like we can have all the science in the world. I mean, the vaccine you were talking about is a perfect example. We have the STEM prowess to make a vaccine, an mRNA vaccine, which as far as I can tell is some kind of, I mean, it's incredible. But if you don't have the social scientists to teach people why that's important and how to think critically, then you get vaccine deniers. And I think that our society is not... We're, we're emphasizing some things and de-emphasizing some others that are real dangerous. And I, I wish that mm. some of these, you know, so-called useless degrees, um, I wish there was a way to make them uh, feasible for people. Well, well, the thing I would throw on that is, and you're right, but the thing I would say to that is our grandparents didn't think they were useless. That's why they exist. Right. So the thing about, so I'm fascinated by deep time, right? So look mm. at the the fact that you can go to school and get a sociology degree at all, the fact that you can go to the university of Alabama, which is, you know, Alabama is a deep red state and Mm -hmm. you can go get a master's in sociology. Yeah. The whole reason you can do that is because somebody's grandparent thought that a sociology degree is useful. Mm -hmm. And the fact is we just don't anymore. And okay. I'm not about judging that. I'm about saying, okay, if it's not, if it's really actually harmful, then we need to get rid of it. And we need to do what that sociology degree was doing some other way. Oh man, I, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I mean, most of the statistics we just threw out about housing come from sociologists. We don't value it, but we got to start. I mean, no, I, I agree with you that we got to start, but I'm also thinking Okay, you're not going to convince, you're never going to convince somebody who doesn't believe it's useful that it's useful, right? Well, I mean, then we're pretty screwed if that's true. I mean, that, that, and I'm not even, I'm not even arguing that might be the case. We might just not value those things any longer, but that is, that is um, a symptom of a dying, a dying nation, in my opinion, dying people. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, I actually, I mean, I actually really believe that we're going to enter a dark age. Because, because like we're saying, you're getting rid of the degrees that encourage independent thought, that encourage um, critical thinking, right? Yeah. Yes. Like, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's an apocryphal story that, you know, in the late Middle Ages, um, the people would look up at the Roman aqueducts in Europe. They would look up at the Roman aqueducts and they'd think, giants built that mm. you know interesting yeah and yeah. the only aque- the only aqueducts that continued to work were the ones in spain and the only reason they worked was because the arabs mm-hmm. knew what they were see yeah so no the yeah I, <laughs> the, the people who kept the the traditions alive we don't we don't like to recognize that but that's absolutely yeah. true no exactly it is true yeah I mean, and I, I mean, I, I, I honestly think we're going to end up in a situation where you're going to be turned into these companies, these businesses, and you're going to be saying, you've got to train these people enough to know how to get through life as far as with a thinking head, because they won't go to college anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. 
You know? Oh yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's, yeah, that, that kind of neo-feudalism does seem to be in our future. If we don't get fascism, I think that's the, that's the likely outcome is we get, you know, yeah, corporations basically driving what they think is and isn't important. And, and, you know, this, uh, I don't know if everyone will agree, but I don't think that it's in corporations' best interest to have a populace that thinks too deeply about things um, or gets a lot of fulfillment out of some of the more beautiful things in life, you know, art, music, poetry, drama. I, I know I sound like a giant nerd right now, but, yeah. you know, it, it's in corporations' best interest to keep us hungry and unhappy because then we'll keep buying products to try to fill that void inside of us. And it, the minute that void gets filled, you know, then we're not going to buy stuff. So I think it's definitely yeah. in corporations' best interest to keep us hungry. Well, somebody I know talking about the, the great recession, somebody I know who shall remain nameless on this podcast. <laughs> um, so I read a lot of, I would read a lot of economists and a lot of political thinkers and blah, blah, blah mm -hmm. about what we call the extended effects of the great recession. Somebody I know actually summed that up better than any economist or political theorist I ever read. Mm. They said, what if the whole reason the recession is continuing is because everybody that ha everybody that can afford an easy chair already has one, hmm. you know, think about, mm -hmm. so look at the, look at the built environment, right? Pre pandemic, you had a bunch of shopping malls. What do shopping malls need? They need people that are, that are paired off in, in husband and wife and kids, right? Or, or partner and kids, right? Whatever. But if you're living with somebody that already has a, an easy chair or a television, you don't need that television or that easy chair. Right. You see what I'm saying? No, I definitely do. And I think that's, yeah. you know, that's the, the problem then is, you know, the corporations need to figure out, okay, well, what next then? What else do they not have that we could convince them that they need? And so I think you get, you know, that's the whole planned obsolescence thing. Like, yeah, if, if TVs were built like they were 30 or 40 years ago, then yeah, we would have a TV for life, but you know, electronics yeah. fall apart and there's always something else, you know, something on the horizon that will make you happy. You know, we have all these shows with just the, what I'm going to call disgustingly rich people living disgustingly wealthy lives. And, and I think a lot of the times they're framed as like, Oh my God, look at these people, like what freaks. But like, honestly, a lot of people see that as aspirational. And as long as people can think of something else to want, then the system gets to continue. And then that seems pretty sick to me. That's an interesting critique. Of, I've never heard that critique of um, what they call the, the golden age of television mm. where, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? I actually Where, like, don't. I'm not familiar with that. So the golden age of television is like, if you look at, so Game of Thrones or mm. Mad Men or just the way television today is structured yeah. is like, it's a multi, it's a movie. It's essentially this movie that takes place in 50 minute chunks. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So what you're doing is instead of going out and whatever, you're saying, I want to sit home because Mad Men is way more interesting than my stupid life. Or yeah. Game of Thrones is way more interesting than my stupid life. Or whatever. <laughs> and I don't know. It's just, yeah. I've never thought about that before. That's a critique. That's this analysis of the golden age of television, you know. 
Oh, thank you. I don't, yeah, I mean, I have no idea, right? I, I, I don't know anything. But yeah, I mean, I especially just, I think of shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, you know, my uh, sweet, my super sweet 16. I don't watch a lot of TV. And look, if that's your escape, I am not here to judge you. Like you do whatever you got to do to get through life, right? However, I think it just, it holds up this like just bizarro standard of living where, again, when if people see that as aspirational, that, that, that's, I mean, my God, that is... That's going to make you sad your whole life because we don't all we don't all get to be Kim Kardashian. Most of us, uh, most of us have to make do. <laughs> yeah, and most of us don't want to be Kanye. No offense to the people who Oof, want to be Kanye. Yeah, I mean he is a genius, but he doesn't look like he's having a lot of fun. I can think of a few. If I were a millionaire, I could think of a few places I'd want to live other than Mercedes Benz Stadium. <laughs> is he doing that now? Oh yeah. Okay. So. Oh my god. I'm on Atlanta United Twitter and they put their heads together and figured out that he's paying a million dollars a day to live essentially in a, in a changing room. Oh my God. What? He li- I'm not kidding. That's crazy. Um, and you can literally, he lives in a changing room and you can literally look at it. He takes a picture of it and posts it to, to Twitter. And wow. It's like depressing. Like you look at that and you're like, I hope he gets help. I mean, honest to God. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. He's, uh, he's got a mattress on the floor and a TV and that's it. And it's a million dollars a day. That's sad. That's baffling. I mean, well, there, there you go. I mean, it's cliche that money doesn't buy happiness, but pretty clearly that's a, no, it's, I mean, as a, as a person who, um, I have bipolar disorder, it's very much under control with medication, but I look at something like that and I, it's, it's hard to, to watch, you know, you just hope that they can also, you know, even out it's, it's possible, you know, you can do it. And I hope that he can, Lord knows he's got the money for it. I mean, you look at that and you look at all this and you're like, cause I'm on, I'm not a Kanye fan, but I'm, like yeah. I said, I'm a fan of Atlanta United and they all put their heads together mm-hmm. and they put all this together and I'm like, I look at that and I'm just like, Oh God, I hope he gets help. Oh yeah. No, that's... cause I mean, in my head, I'm thinking, well, he's really from here. Like his people are really from here. His family, he, he's identifies with Chicago, but his parents were both from here. Huh? And I wonder, I honest, I don't know anything, but I wonder, honestly, is he like, are his people or his family kind of keeping an eye on him? Yeah, well, you I don't know. Right. I don't know. <laughs> and Feels I like I... no, I'm not going to edit this part out. No, I, <laughs> I mean, do it. It's a, it's an interesting digression, but, uh, <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. No, poor, poor Kanye. I don't know. I, poor Kanye. Right. Just, this is the thing we all think that, you know, having billions and billions of dollars would make us happy, but yeah, I'm just not sure that's true. I don't think it's working out. You you mentioned the, the Kardashians earlier. I mean, yeah. Jesus. I mean, money can't buy happiness. It can buy things and make you happy. Oh, yeah. No, you know, I, I got to say, it looks like fun. I mean, honestly, my personal hell would be to live the Kardashian life because, I mean, having a camera follow me around, just catching me in all my mess, like, I mean, I don't know. They seem, I guess, polished enough. I'm not, I don't watch the show, but I gather that it's fun and that they have fun. Like, I don't know. I don't think I want people to, like, watch me, like, lie in bed for four hours being sad sometimes. Like, I don't want that life, you know? <laughs> I, I will never forget how I learned who the Kardashians even were. 
I I was walking through the mall, right? Mm-hmm. And these people stopped, like on both sides of me. This whole big line of people huh. stopped, and they started staring at me. And I'm like, "What are you doing? Like this isn't normal." And then I realized they're not looking at me; they're looking at somebody else. Uh huh. And and this person walked right past me, and then the, this went on for a while. And the person walked right. This person walked right past me, and then you know we were back to condition normal. And I asked, like, what the hell just happened? And you don't know? <laughs> no what? You don't know who that was? No. That was Kim Kardashian. Okay. Huh? All right. <laughs> wow. So you've seen Kim Kardashian. Didn't even know. <laughs> she didn't look any she didn't look like anything special. She you know, not you know. She looked Fair like enough. a one. Like a, she looked like a young, like a normal looking young lady who huh. was mild to moderately attractive, just going mm-hmm. to the mall. Yeah, and, well, I, mean, you know, I mean, I know that she does not live a normal life, but she is, she's just a human being who has an yeah. absolutely insane amount of wealth. And uh, it's funny because, yeah, it's funny because I used to know a guy who used to work at this coffee shop in Nashville. Hmm. Um, and he always would say, like, like, uh, what's her name? Nicole Kidman used to come into my coffee shop all the time with her, mm-hmm. her boyfriend or whoever it was. I forget, yeah. I forget his name. But he would, al- he would always be like, she doesn't look like the way you think she looks. She oh. absolutely doesn't look like that. Interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, <laughs> I know filters are a hell of a thing right now. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, it's living here. You actually, not every day, but you do meet people. Like you see people mm-hmm. like you see, like I've seen Elton John like three times. Whoa, really? Yeah. Huh. At the, like, it's funny, like at the grocery store or once I saw him at a Braves game. That was pretty funny. Nice. Uh, hey, good for that him. Was, that was hilarious, actually. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so back to uh, renting and yeah. other other stuff. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Let's see. I mean, what else? So, um, what what do you when you close your eyes at night? Like, what are the things you think about as far as with Afghanistan? Um, I mean, the truth is it's, it's been a strange, uh, it's been a strange few days because I I don't think about it a lot. I have kind of, I mean, I think for me, it's like, you kind of have to move past it and and create a new life. I think people that don't manage it don't always do very well. There's, you know, a long tradition of veterans not making the transition uh, at all or well, but uh, I mean, Mm. when I do think about it, I, I think about a waste I think about the thing that radicalized me. I mean, or at least started me on the path. I I grew up um, with ideas that most people would consider right wing, very much so. I mean, I watched a lot of Fox News, radically pro capitalist, and uh, you know, joined the army out of patriotism. And Afghanistan was the thing that that first made me think. You know, I think maybe people are lying to me. What else have they been lying to me about? Um, yeah. And I think about the the fact. I I really do greatly admire the Afghan people. And it's been 
strange on Twitter. I've been, I've been getting some, some people who think that I'm like dehumanizing them or otherwise being callous. And it's just, I don't think that's what the Twitter thread says. And it's also not what I think. Like, I think you've got an incredibly brave, tough, patient group of people out there and tenacious fighters and just bloody minded determination. And I, I think about that and I hope that, I hope that people like Cowboy can be okay. I hope that the tribes can live the way they want to. I, you hope for the best, right? And and I haven't had a lot of hope, but you know, yeah. I mean, it's funny how I don't know. I I just think back like to there's a scene in my mind that I keep replaying these days. It's a scene where all these old uncles, all these old aunts and uncles of mine, right? They were all sitting on the couch mm-hmm. and they were just sort of, they were tired, but they weren't like physically tired. They were just tired of like, mm. you know, the depression, the World War II. They've just seen all this stuff. Yeah. And I just think that's going to be us later. <laughs> like, that's oh, gonna, yeah. It's going to be us later. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, this is a little dark, but it, it's, you know, I still want to live forever. And given the chance, I certainly would. But I've begun to understand in the last few years why maybe it's it's by design that we die at 80 or 70. Like, you know, maybe there's only so much that people can take before they're like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm going to I'm going to go to sleep. Check, please. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. We're done here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, um, just, you know, my advice to people is to stay curious. Um, yeah, just as long as you stay curious, you're young at heart, I guess. And, I like um, that. Well, people, I've had guests before that tell me that you seem like a person that has a zest for life and just really curious about things. And I wouldn't have this podcast if I wasn't curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it seems like a really cool, a cool gig to be able to just talk to people that have different experiences. That that definitely speaks to a curiosity. It's fun, like. What's so cool is like, like not people like you per se, not like, or like experts, but just like normal, like I talked to this kid in Iowa or I talked, there's a man in Australia and we're trying to make it work where we just have a talk, you know, because mm-hmm. Australia is weird because it's a different time. Like our mm. the times don't quite line up. Like. Like I'm, I'm on the radio in Singapore, which that's easy because huh. Singapore's, Singapore's just twelve hours away, right? That's uh-huh. just 12, 12 hours different, but fourteen hours gets a little, little strange. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's a tough, uh, tough road to hoe on that one. Yeah, but I just love talking to people about what what do you see in the world because mm-hmm. when you line up all these conversations, you can really start to see like there's. This is what's going on in the world. This is what's going on. And it's so mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess it's not cool. It's, it's just a real interesting historical resource for a, yeah. a really weird time. Yes. Um, so where do you see yourself in a few years? Uh, I mean, I have high hopes, right? I'm, uh, I'm working on a book about, I went to, I was lucky enough to go to uh, CPAC 21 in, uh, in Florida in late February, and I'm trying to write a book kind of based on that, that discusses 
a lot of different things, but I, I hope to have that published. I hope that it's successful. I hope to have a master's degree in journalism and to be publishing long form creative nonfiction. You know, I, I hope, uh, I hope that I get to do what I love, which is to learn interesting things and write about them. And, uh, you know, I hope I get to do that yeah. forever. Talk about just for a minute, talk about CPAC 21. What was that like? <sighs> that was a trip. Oh my God. Um, yeah. It was it was an alternate dimension. I mean, people talk about alternate facts, but it was basically, I would describe it as a four-day indoctrination session in which people were presented with a worldview and then had those, you know, quote unquote facts repeated for four solid days and then got, you know, ragingly drunk at night, which was one of the more interesting things was getting ragingly drunk at night and talking to just random people that you meet at the bar or out, you know, walking around or whatever. And like, I don't know. I found myself at one point at 2 a.m. with two um, two long shot far right candidates for the House of Representatives and a young uh, a young gentleman who was, a, you know, worked on campaigns who I think thought he was going to get lucky and, and definitely didn't. And we were just swapping war stories. And like, honestly, it was a good time. And of course, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, wow, if they knew who I really was and what I really think, they would they would not be, you know, they would be real mad and they would they would treat me very differently. But it was it was a window into the way I think a lot of the ideas that percolate down to people like the anti-vaxxers or the Proud Boys, like where they come from. And it made me want to switch my focus. I've been, you know, so focused on things like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer in Portland. I've been infiltrating those events for years. And it made me realize that if you want to defeat the snake, you got to go for the head. Like, you know, this, the, the Proud Boys are what happens at the end of the process. And there's a feedback loop, but it was revolutionary for me. And that's something I, I hope to be able to write about is the way forward in that sense. I mean, you know, so, okay. What is, so like these right wing, far right, people in the house you know are they where did they come from are they proud boys or what what are they oh no no that's and that's the thing is that i mean the, the proud boys are you know that they're the cannon fodder and that's that you know you, you knock you you get one of them out and, and two more pop up these are the long shot candidates were you know they were both veterans and, and they were not really from what i would call the political classes but you know most of the people there and most of the people that actually win, neither of them, no offense, guys, if you're listening, you aren't, neither of them are, are going to win a seat. The people who win seats are the people going to the Ronald Reagan dinner, which costs $300 a head. They're the ones at the chic bar, you know, networking. They're the people in the designer clothes. They're, they're wealthy. They're extremely wealthy. And those are the people pulling the strings. Those are the people telling the Proud Boys what to think and catering to them and manipulating them in, you know, I'm not trying to drum up the kind of sympathy for proud boys were like, Oh, poor babies. We got to like, you know, treat them with kid gloves. I'm just saying that they are the people who are doing this to us are not the proud boys. They are the ones bringing the violence to the streets. The people doing this to us are the conservative strategists that have decided this is the best way to stay in power. And they don't care what it does to people. They don't care how many people die of, you know, not getting the vaccine. What they care about is getting their people in office to save our, us from the, the scourge of communism or whatever they think the democratic party is. So, okay. That is fascinating that they don't have like to, in their mind, COVID is such a non-threat that they don't 
think that like it matters if so many people i mean yeah well the medical name for covid is SARS for covid19 the real name for it is sars cov2 okay so it's, it's all in the same family right mm-hmm. so if you look at it as a family and you look at this graph that was way on the bottom you know way down here you know, and creep, we're going through the years and you're still down. And then all of a sudden yeah. in like 18, 19, it shoots, it skyrockets. Interesting. It That's what I'm saying. When you look at COVID-19 by itself, it's not really that big a deal. They're right. But when you look at, when you situate it in the COVID family, you really start to see the graph and you're like, oh boy, <laughs> this is going <laughs> one, this is going in one direction and that direction is, is straight up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely hear what you're saying. I would, I would push back against the idea that COVID nineteen isn't a big deal by itself. I think they're well, dead wrong about that. But it is a, okay. It is a big deal as far as with the injuries, as far as like with well, and the the, the deaths. <laughs> I mean, right. six hundred and and some thousand Americans alone have died, and a, a more are dying every day. Well, and that's okay. And that's six hundred thousand Americans that went to the doctor. This is what mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, right. I, so it could I, be worse. Yeah. Well, I have this little theory, this little Black Hawk helicopter theory that it is worse because, because mm-hmm. in order to have COVID, you have to go to the doctor to say mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah. it's like I did this whole, it's like I did this whole podcast on the Spanish flu mm-hmm. and two of the episodes were, ha- one of them was called how to die of the Spanish flu and the other one was how not to die of the Spanish flu. Hmm. Uh-huh. And the, way to, the way to die of the Spanish flu was to have the grace and favor to drop dead in the vicinity of a doctor who thought you could have died of the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're dying in front of doctors who don't think you have it. Right. You see what I'm saying? No, I definitely do. That's no, I mean, I would, yeah, that makes sense yeah, to me. And so it's, it's actually even worse than it seems, which it seems pretty bad already. It seems bad, but what if it's worse? You know, yeah. So again, I, I think it's a pretty big deal, and that the the Republicans are wrong to uh, to think I mean, it isn't. I think it's a big deal, and I want to say that I think it's a big deal. I wouldn't be doing my COVID podcast if I didn't think it was a big deal. Yeah. But when you take COVID nineteen by itself, and you say this killed six hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. but you don't situate it on the graph that says COVID number one or COVID in two thousand or two thousand two killed 80,000 people okay mm-hmm. and over a 20 year span you've had this swoosh yeah <laughs> it's doing nothing but go up mm-hmm. you see? Yeah, i mean if that's if that's our future then it, it is grim indeed so well, well yeah uh, yeah well, laura believe it or not i've had a great chat and i would love for you to come back it's yeah, well, thank you. It was, it was a delight to be on. Thank you for having me. And let's talk about that. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this episode of the History Voyager. Uh, there's a couple of housekeeping things I want to talk about right now. Um, the first thing is that on the day we recorded this, Kanye West was, in fact, living in a changing room in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, This was widely reported in the media and on various Twitter feeds, including his own, by the way. The other thing I want to bring up is that the world has changed in regards to COVID-19 yet again. 
So the Lambda variant is very, very serious. And virologists um, were warning people about this. They were saying that if you don't mask up and get a vaccine, in other words, if you don't uh, rob the virus of potential hosts, it will evolve and mutate. And it has evolved and mutated. Uh, there is a finding, I believe, out of Asia that says that the Lambda variant of COVID-19 scoots completely around the human immune system. And the AstraZeneca vaccine is, in an alarming number of cases, basically uh, ineffective against the uh, Lambda variant of COVID-19. Uh, so basically masking and social distancing is what works. And when you see the graph, um, that is what works. And I realize, unfortunately, in my country of the United States, this virus has become political. And that's greatly unfortunate. It's, it's greatly unfortunate that this virus has gotten caught in the politics of my country. But it's the truth. You you have to, you know, mask up and, and social distance, you know, if you're not uh, vaccinated. Now, I should put all the cards on the table and talk about how in, in this country, a very small percentage, at least at the recording of this virus, uh, a very small percentage of people have the Lambda variant. Now, the thing about the Lambda variant that you have to understand is the Lambda variant is a slow-moving variant. It uh, didn't move as fast as um, Delta or the regular um, COVID-19 uh, variant that first came to popular attention essentially in February or March of 2019. But it is much more deadly. However, I need to tell you that as I talk into this microphone... I've been able to find, as far as I've been able to find, there's fewer than 900 cases in the country. However, the thing that is the most, um, I guess, problematic would be the word um, with Lambda is that it is uh, vaccine resistant. Um, at least that's as far as, as the... Uh, Scientists and virologists, etc., have been able to to figure out that it is vaccine resistant. Um, anyway, people, so I just thought I'd do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, also, we're going to have another history deep dive. Uh, this history deep dive looks like it's going to be on the tulip bubble, which is very, very interesting, and I think. In a lot of ways, uh, pretty telling, I think, on our society today, even though it happened so long ago. All right, and as always, and I'm sure my longtime listeners will be able to say it with me, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. See you later. <laughs>